there was this secondhand music shop on Notting Hill Gate, which was a good place to go and find instruments. And one day I was in there testing the intonation on a guitar and Brian walked in and uh, I thought, that's Brian Eno. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lawrence Diamond. And I'm Bob Matthews. And this is The Process of Production. Mate, how's your week been? It's been very good, thanks. And quite a lot going on. I, um, I've just started doing some tutoring at uh, this music college uh, in London called ICMP. Uh, yeah, nice. Which, uh, uh, Institute of Contemporary Music Production? Music Performance. Performance, solid, lovely. Yeah, I'm teaching just an introduction to music production course, which has been really good. Like, I, I, I kind of caught the teaching bug, like teaching a couple of my clients a little bit about production. And I really like that feeling of passing on some knowledge mm. and I get a, I get mm-hmm. a, a little bit of that from doing this podcast as well and it's it's great to talk to people who are kind of way more knowledgeable than us and we're learning and then passing mm. that knowledge on to the listeners but yeah I, I I really like it and teaching like total beginners has been a bit of a challenge actually because it's been 15 years since logic was new to me and a lot of these concepts you just kind of forget like what it's like to be completely fresh to them um, and it's been really mm. inspiring, but kind of challenging as well. So, yeah. I think for a long time, Logic was something that other people did near me, like when I was in the band and I had just such a really limited grasp of it. And yeah, like opening a MIDI region, if you've never used it before, or, or yeah. you're, that's not how you th- have thought about music before. That's another thing is maybe they're musicians coming to Logic for the first time and they're more used to being in the kind of physical world. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe they're coming to music production later in life, and they they kind of want to have it as a something to learn as a hobby in that time. And it's it's not just like a maybe a fifteen year old kid who's used to these interfaces and these interactions. You know, you, you don't know what people's background is and where they're coming at something from. Yeah, I taught my students MIDI on on Tuesday evening, and um, some of them had clearly like come across it before and took took to it like a duck to water. But others, it was a bit of a kind of strange concept, and and having to explain what MIDI is. It's actually mm. quite challenging. It's like it's how we talk to the computer and tell it what notes we want to play. But, mm, uh, yeah, I, very. Know. It's really interesting. We did a bit of work at ICMP together with a project we were working yep. on uh, with a lady called Trudy Mosiamo. Um, and they lent me their choir. Oh, yeah. And I sort of had to go in and, and then, yeah, I sort of had two hats on, which was like I had a production hat on, but like not a teacher hat because they were all phenomenal singers and much better singers than me. But sort of understanding that thing of like, this is sort of a classroom situation as well mm. as a recording mm. situation. Like they're not being paid to do this for us. Um, and it was really exciting um, to be in that environment. But you get a, a different feel when it's um, students and the, and the enthusiasm and there's no jadedness and, and it's lovely to be around. Yeah, that was a really fun day. Uh, that's the one time where I've been like the producer in the studio. There was, there was an engineer, the in-house guy manning the desk. You were mm. in the live room like kind of marshalling the the choir and get and like you know inspiring them to d- do great takes and i was just kind of sat on the couch in the back of the control room like i don't really have to do much at the moment um <laughs> same to the engineer yeah. T- mark that one yeah. mark that one <laughs> yeah um fantastic stuff yeah. i yeah I, another thing i was going to circle back to for this week was I, I i had a song that i co-wrote came out last a couple of weeks ago, I should probably should have mentioned it in the last episode. It's a great song called "Low." Well, I think it's great. Yeah, it is, no, it's, it's a great band called The Castells. The, the track's called "Low," 
Um, and I think the main thing that I always like talking about releases because I think it's important to acknowledge them and it's, it's an exciting thing when you've put that work in. But one thing I wanted to talk about was I co-wrote it with the band, but I didn't produce it. It was produced by a guy called Andy Hall Hall. Yes. Which is A, is a great name, and B, he's a great producer. He really knocked it out of the park, I think. He really did, yeah. And what I loved about listening to it was hearing those things that we've talked about. Like, A, he made the demo sound. You know, the recording is incredible. Mm. But him and the band have clearly drilled in on actual arrangements and little bits of composition here and there. And um, I, as a songwriter... I really enjoyed hearing that, you know, with my production hat off and just going, oh, that's a lovely idea. That's a great, you know, cool. those things can be really exciting. And, and I really enjoy that. I don't, um, I don't wish it was me that had produced it. I sort of go, oh, yeah, I love to hear mm. what people do with your work and where they take it. That's a nice feeling. Yeah. Well, congrats yes. on the release, man. And yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Chapeau. Yeah, talking about all the kind of different roles that, that we have and, and all the hats we wear at different times in, in what we do. Our guest this week is is a really interesting one for all the different roles that he performs mm, with definitely. his music, isn't he? Well, so it's a gentleman called Leo Abrahams, and and you may know him as sort of a protege of Brian Eno, mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll talk about that before we get to the interview. But also, I sort of know him as someone who produced some bands that I love, like Wild Beasts and yep. Frightened Rabbit. Yeah, I came across him um, when I was in Alpines cause, as someone we were looking at maybe working with because he'd produced loads of bands that I loved. And he's just, I read an interview with him, and, and he just seemed like a really interesting. A character and then since then he's added a loads more kind of feathers to his bow like a co film composition yeah. he tours with Imogen Heap at times it's just a fascinating musician polymath kind of figure yeah and he came to production from being a, a guitarist which is quite an interesting route in and and I think you feel like the guitar is still the sort of the center of his world in terms of composition and how he approaches uh, music production as well also, I think like earlier in the podcast I remember we interviewed someone and we talked about Steve Albini and I feel that as like part of your uh, ascension as a podcast in music is you have to have a story about Steve Albini. And yeah. now we have one about Brian Eno, who obviously is one of the legends of music production, but also in particular for you, Bob, one of your heroes. I think if you asked me to, to pick a favorite producer, I'd, I'd probably come down on, on Brian Eno. I just, it's not necessarily because of the music that he's made, although I'm a big fan of like his ambient stuff. And I think that's really inspiring. He's kind of the godfather of ambient. But I just, I love the way that he approaches music production uh as as like an artist as like a fine artist and and it's all very conceptual and he's got so many good ideas and and philosophies to, to approach music production the best example of that i think is uh, a product he created with uh, another guy called peter schmidt called oblique strategies which i've got in front of Love me now it. and i think every decent studio should have a set of these it's basically a set of cards and on each card is written like a random phrase or an instruction. So the idea is when you're a bit stuck in the studio, you're supposed to just pick one at random and it can get, like get you out of a hole. Let's do it now. Okay. Just showing that to Lawrence. It says, honor thy error as a hidden intention. That is an absolute cornerstone oblique strategy. That's classic. I love it. That's classic Eno. So that's 101 oblique strategy. And randomly, I think this comes up in the interview um brilliant I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll chat about it after but yeah that's a really good example like and how many of us have been in the studio and done that like what was that you know, oh i didn't mean to do that like, yes no that's cool let's put that in and it's like, mm -hmm. just a little reminder yeah I'm, I'm working on yeah. some songs at the moment and doing loads of arrangement changes 
the amount of times I press play by mistake and it starts at the wrong point and I realize no that's where it should have been yeah. actually and and uh, yeah let's let's move that where it should have been and, it's almost a trope yeah. at, at some uh, at some point isn't it like uh, yes you know. I feel yeah. like now when we intro the um interview it should just start halfway through and we should honor that as our intention yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, this is where the interview <laughs> but, um, actually got interesting yeah um, yeah, but we will honor Leo uh, as well we should because this is a fantastic interview. So big thanks to him. Yeah. Um, I hope you all enjoy it and we will see you on the other side. Leo Abrahams is a musician, composer and producer. Although classically trained, he left behind a degree in composition at the Royal Academy to play guitar for Imogen Heap and later Ed Harcourt as part of their touring bands. A chance encounter with production legend Brian Eno led to him assisting on a variety of projects, often helping to finish the myriad of releases Brian would be working across. This led to him taking on more production roles, and Leo has since built a fascinating CV that includes Frightened Rabbit, Wild Beasts, Katie Melior, and Paolo Nutini. From his newly completed studio in East London, he now divides his time between film and TV composition, session guitar work, his own solo albums, and of course, his production work. It's here we joined him to hear the story of his new studio, his serendipitous meeting with Mr. Eno, and what it's like touring Siberia with a coach full of free jazz musicians. Yeah, so, so did, did you stay put then in your home studio? Is that where you are now? Or yeah, you... I... Um... I used to live in Homerton and uh, then I I was looking around for somewhere I could build a studio in London and basically gave up um, and I thought <laughs> I'm going to have to move out and then I found this place in uh, in Leighton and it's a it's a strange house it uh, it's on a corner so it sort of gets wider as it goes down it looks it's just a terraced house yeah. in the front and then it goes, gets wider so by the bottom of the garden it's pretty wide and there was a building here which was already sort of falling down it's just made out of plywood and um so we knocked it down built the studio um Amazing. and i've just cut out uh, two years of suffering and panic in telling you that story <laughs> but it was totally worth it so how long has it been finished i've been in here since july Okay, so, really so was that okay. was that sort of two years of panic while everyone was that during lockdown that you sort of had to go through that? It was actually built during lockdown, but there were various uh, sort of hindrances and surprises on the way. Some of them actually, some of the surprises were pleasant. Like we found a bomb shelter underneath the studio, which oh wow, wow. nobody wow. you know for years had known was there in this house. Have you incorporated the bomb shelter into the studio as a sort of have, chamber or something? I have. Oh, the, right. the, the main bit of the bomb shelter is over the front and that's actually now a bit of the garden it's like a sort of sunken garden now oh, nice. but the smaller room because proper bomb shelters used to have to have an escape chamber in case oh. the main entrance got blocked so there's this sort of two by two meter cube and a little corridor and that is directly underneath the the control room and it houses the um uh computers and this all my you know bits and bobs are stored down there and uh there's tie lines down there, so you can put amps down and stuff. It's really cool. Let's kick things off by just talking about kind of the multiple roles you, you play um, in your work. So most of the people we featured on the podcast kind of have these multiple roles, but your various ones are kind of more clearly defined perhaps than anyone else we've spoken to. So you've got your session guitar work, your production work, and and your composition work. Is that how you see yourself? Well... It's quite interesting you say that, actually, because it, it doesn't feel particularly well-defined. Um, right. 
I mean, there are certain areas of that of those types of work, like for example, playing on movie soundtracks, where you have mm. your agent and then you establish relationships with the composers, and you're very much there to. Um, well, there there is a creative element, but you're pretty much there to read the dots and bring life to those dots, mm. and sometimes put in your own input. But just the structure of it is very. It has a hierarchy that world. Whereas I suppose in the production world, if I'm playing guitar on a record that I'm also producing, or if I'm playing on a record that a mate of mine's producing, then it, it feels a little more fluid, I suppose. Um, I think that's just kind of the modern way. And actually one of my hopes for the, for the studio now is that there'll be perhaps fewer monolithic production projects from start to finish and hopefully more situations where artists will come in and want to, want me to sort of contribute in some way. Um, yeah. Maybe they just want a really good sounding space to record their vocals or drums or some piano or whatever. Maybe I'll play, maybe I won't. But I like that fluidity and I don't, I don't feel that I need to be called the producer just because I'm going to help somebody do something, you know? It's interesting because when you look at the work you've done, I see... You know, there are some producers who are maybe, and a lot less these days, but I think there still is, where they sort of come in and they listen to the songs, they help arrange them a bit, they instruct the engineer, this is a nice vocal chain, I'd like the drums to sound like this, and then they sort of inspire the musicians and sit there, you know, with a metaphorical cigar. And you look at your productions, and, and I get the impression that you're sort of talking to them about the song, then tracking their instruments, and then motivate. It really feels like you kind of fill the whole glass up with them. Um, and that must be quite an undertaking at times. Well, it's it's really interesting you say that because I, when I started out, I mean, in in some ways I came to production quite late because I was pretty much exclusively a guitar player and string arranger for most of my twenties. And then it was when I, uh, it was when Brian Eno asked me to help him finish off a couple of records that he was working on that I began to think, oh right, you know, I'll, uh, I enjoy this. I like mm. doing this probably more than being on tour, and uh, I, I, I like it. So, yeah, the engineering thing was sort of the last piece of the puzzle. When I started, there were often there would be budget for an engineer and a mixer and a, quote proper studio and all of these things. Mm. And then as time went on, it got more and more common that the types of projects that I wanted to work on, I was actually going to have to do everything myself. <laughs> sure, <laughs> and sure. Yeah. To be honest, I'd rather not. <laughs> but yes. Because it is quite yeah. overwhelming. I mean, definitely I approach production as an arranger, first and foremost, as a musical mm. arranger. And sometimes that's a strength. And sometimes, frankly, I think it's a weakness because there are problems of, of uh, energy and problems of... Um, well, any of the things that confront you when you're trying to produce a track that you don't necessarily need music to solve. It's, there are technical solutions, and that's, that's something I'm realising more and more. So, I mean, there are definitely projects I've done where I've, I've done a lot, and there have been a lot of projects I've done where I haven't done, I think, a huge amount except facilitated whatever small part of the picture the artist can't themselves do. And that, in my philosophy, that's the real point of production is to be the missing link between the artist and the finished thing um mm. so like i was saying earlier if that means they need someone to arrange their strings for them uh, and play a load of fish that's fine if mm. they just need someone to sort of hold their hand and point them in the right direction that's fine 
Um, you've had a very interesting route into music production, going from being classically trained to playing guitar for artists like Imogen Heap and then Ed Harcourt. But perhaps we could jump in at the moment you had a chance encounter with one of my personal heroes, Ryan Eno. Could you maybe tell us that story and, and where it led? Yeah, there was this secondhand music shop on Notting Hill Gate, uh, which was a good place to go and find instruments. And one day I was in there testing the intonation on a guitar and Brian walked in. And uh, I thought, that's Brian Eno. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything. So I just kept on testing this guitar out. And uh, he came over and said he thought it sounded nice. I was just playing harmonics. <laughs> wow. um, and then I that's, didn't. That, that, that's typical of Edo. It was it? pretty cool. He was yeah. so nice. And uh, anyway, I didn't hear from him for six months. So I thought, well, that's not going to come to anything. And then suddenly he called up and said, can you come into the studio tomorrow? Blimey. I wasn't wow. very experienced with sessions at that point. And, but I'd heard about his unusual methods in the studio shall we say so yes mm -hmm. i turned up there walked in it was a small studio in this muse house where he's got all his setup and there was a guitar already plugged in everything ready to go so i thought right he's he set things up for me and i picked up the guitar and it was radically out of tune not just out of tune but like <laughs> strings hanging off so i thought oh this is a test and um they played the track <laughs> <laughs> they played the track and i was doing this sort of african drum talking drum thing which was just about the only thing he could play on this guitar but he he liked it it seemed to go well and then the next track came on and i said oh do you mind if i play my own guitar on this because you know timidly because i'd like to play a tune and <laughs> yeah, yeah i've exhausted the possibilities of that. yeah and he said oh yeah i didn't expect you to actually play that guitar i was just using it to test the line but <laughs> so he wasn't testing you he wasn't testing me he was testing the line <laughs> but I think the, the fact that I'd managed to get something out of it was, you know, it helped set us on our way. And mm. after that, he brought me along on a lot of really unbelievable sessions. And we sort of graduated to, to me helping him finish things off because he's always got so many plates spinning. Mm. And as so, I said, that was sort of my introduction into the world of finishing stuff. <laughs> uh, and that was when you first realized there might be a role for me here as a producer. Yes, yes. Mm. I mean, I never wanted to stop playing guitar because a lot of Brian's... Brian's had a few people over the years who are in my position, probably the one that comes immediately to mind is Marcus Dravs, who's also mm. a friend of mine. And in some ways, we I think we were doing quite similar things, although I was more of a player. But not everyone... And Fred Gibson was with Brian. Yeah, I was going to say, at the moment, it's Fred, isn't it, is, is kind of graduated from that school. Yeah, so... But I don't think I, you know, I'm not really in that league as either of those guys, but I also kind of didn't want to be. I never sort of thought I'm going to give up playing the guitar and doing all these things that I like doing or producing. I never even particularly felt like I wanted to produce big records. I just mm. wanted to, I just wanted to work on music that I liked, which was quite a naive thing in some ways. But, you know, he, he it did affect me deeply having worked with Brian, but mm. it hasn't, it's not like a, what I'm trying to say is that working with him isn't really like a a ticket to the production stratosphere. Mm. It's more like going to art school, you know. Yes. Yes. You just learn a lot about attitude. You've spoken about how his innocence and curiosity make for a great atmosphere in the studio. Yeah, he's he just it's not that he makes it fun for everybody because it sounds a bit deliberate, like being Krusty the Clown or something. But <laughs> he, <laughs> which is what being a producer is like sometimes. But um, <laughs> it, it's more about he genuinely believes that's how 
the creation of art should be, and that's an infectious thing. He's a, a, a friend of mine, Tim Harry, he's a great bass player. I heard a podcast he did recently, and he described Brian as an incandescent presence, and that's true. He's not um, hugely extroverted necessarily, but he's the sort of person that changes the room by walking into it, and it's just such a lovely, benevolent sort of atmosphere that he brings. It's, it's interesting how you describe that, because when I was looking at the records you've produced, that's, and, and I've seen things where you've said like, oh, you know, should I have focused on production and, and, and become the person that when a label has got a band that needs to make a record and it needs to go top 40, I, I would be the person they called. But then almost I look at the records you've made and the thread that runs through them is that they, they always seem to be driven by art. Whatever genre they're, they're within, they seem quite pure in their motivation. So a lot of like the Frightened Rabbit records and stuff like that, I, they're just very pure statements of, of the artist's intent. Do you feel that's maybe something you, that, you know, you, maybe you could take from me, you know, all this thing and go, now I will go and produce, you know, Ed Sheeran, for example, perhaps. But you've really found that, that river of kind of helping a, an artist reach where they're going to get to. Well, it's just such a big subject. And in a way, that's what makes producing feel for me like something I can keep exploring forever and never find an answer to it. And that, that quality is... It's actually quite alarming in one in one way. Yeah, yes, but yeah. in another way, it's the essence of it for me. I don't know. It's just, I think you can only really. I don't think we have as much choice as we think we do in life about our approach and stuff like that. Mm. And I've often questioned myself about have I got the right priorities? Like I was saying about music versus sound or something. Like if I walked into a production with the same attitude that I walk into a guitar session, um, it would probably be quite different, but I always walk into a production feeling very unsure, frankly. Um, but in a way, that's a positive. It's, it just always comes back to me for, is this, does this feel like the artist? Truthfully, does this feel like the artist? I don't want the records I make for other people to sound like me at all. I'm trying to always distill the essence of the artist so I mean I'm happy if if you really have picked that up from the records that's good because that stylistically they're all <laughs> stylistically they're all over the place but mm. it's just an intuitive thing you know you sort of feel somebody when you meet them let alone when they start playing what they've been doing and I think it's just a really precious thing that you don't want to dilute with your own ideas too much uh, I read a really interesting quote from you about um it was, some, it was about something that Brian taught you about removing ego from music, mm. which I think is a really key point and something that I think we could all do with, but also po possibly very hard when you're an artist. I, I just wondered if that's something you've been able to bring to your production work and something you've been able to communicate to artists because um, we all tend to get wrapped up in our own work and ego can get in the way. Yeah. I mean, there's two separate things there. There's the relationship with one's own ego and then there's what you do for the artist and obviously the priority yes. is what you're mm -hmm. doing for the artist and I think that most artists have something that makes them want to stand up in front of people and communicate personally mm -hmm. I don't really have that which is why I haven't done that much with my own music in that respect other than make it and release <laughs> it um but the I don't know whether I call that ego I think it's actually 
more to do with sharing or communication. And all you can really try and do as a producer is to facilitate a space where the artist can give that in, mm. in, the, in the truest possible way, you know. And it's in the production 101 manual as well. You make the nice lighting and give them a cup of tea and make sure their <laughs> headphones are good and everything. Yeah. But sometimes it's actually about uh, reassurance when there's insecurity and, mm. and well, in my belief, making sure that every step of the process is to serve what they really want out of it and to make sure that everything that's going down is feeling like them. Mm. I mean, there are times when it, a production gets, you know, stuck and you have to slightly pull the wool over people's eyes. Everybody knows <laughs> that. But there's, a, there's a, a complicity in that because in the end, the artist is in charge, they're paying or their label is paying. You're their employee and that's fundamental to everything. But yes. a bit like with management, there's this kind of jedi mind trick switch where it sort of seems like you the producer are in charge and or the manager is in charge and the artist has to mm. slightly recede you know in that authority I, I really think a lot of it is balancing those two weird realities it just circling back to something and it was funny the way you phrased it because it um kind of production 101 it, it the, the things we learn interviewing people it, you know things do come up and one it is there still a world now in, in a slightly more modern way of making music where you deliberately don't make the lighting nice or you don't give them a nice cup of tea because you're like, actually, there, there's an anger in this piece or there's, you know, I, I, I want to find, you know, you hear it historically of like, you know, Quincy doing this to Michael so that he would give this performance or whatever, but it seems not the relationships between producers and artists are evolving. Do you still find yourself, I suppose, situate, you know, it's interesting because you've actually worked with Eno. So normally when I say things that I've read Eno have done, it's kind of in the abstract, but he used to make David Byrne run on the spot so that he would be out of breath for some of the talking head stuff that was meant to sound, you know, urgent. And I'd, I, I've not been in a studio space where I've heard a producer go, could you run on the spot? It feels like it might be slightly from a different world, but is there still times that you go, I'm going to push them a bit here or, you yeah. know... Yeah. Or even I'm just going to put on disco lighting rather than comfortable lighting or something. Right, like right. Well, pushing, yeah, you do have to push, but I don't know if I've got into any serious psychological experiments. <laughs> it's, the, the thing that came to mind while, while you were talking about that kind of thing was a, a, I've had a couple of records. The most recent one was with Katie Melua, where I felt like the vocals sounded a bit disjointed because... I guess because the lyrics were still being finished right up to the wire, you know. And some singers, that is incredible because it sounds really fresh. Like Palinatini, he wouldn't sing the song more than two or three times, ever, what? until wow. it was finished. I think his, on the record before the one I did, he actually sang it at mastering. But he's that good of a singer. <laughs> he's that Gosh. good of a singer that he can do it. Gosh. Other singers, they need to practice more and get into the song. Mm. Um, that was Katie's situation. So with her and with this, this other artist a few years ago, I just lined up. Once we got the vocals and they were all right, I mean, you know, I would have said, yes, that's okay, but I just felt like there was more. I think we both felt like there was more. Um, but how are we going to get there? Because it's just such a monumental undertaking. Okay, we'll do three or four or five takes on every track and recomp it all and re-listen to it all. 
I just lined up all the instrumentals in the album order and got her to sing the record from start to finish. And we did that. It was like three little sets in a day. Mm. And because she's such a tremendous singer, she, she did it. And that was the album. There was very, very little comping. And it was exactly how it should be. And she, she was fantastic. She came and she uh, brought a different outfit for every run through. Incredible. These beautiful dresses, yes. you know, and yes. was singing. And that, that was great. You know, she got on board with it. The other time I tried to do that because basically we'd recorded the whole album at Rack and then run out of money and then the artist wasn't that happy with her performances. Uh, we tried to do it and it was all a disaster. We didn't get anything. <laughs> the album was great in the end, but yeah, that, that didn't work. So I was worried I about doing it again, but it did work this time. That's going to only suit a certain type of singer or performer, I guess. Yeah. We've talked about how, yeah, different performers, in my mind, not as a singer, I always thought that going into a big studio with lighting and this is the moment you perform would, would appeal to singers because that feels like it should be part of their psyche. But we increasingly hear that actually, no, most singers can find that intimidating and they want they they want their SM57 and sat on the couch behind you now almost. Yeah, that's, to feel that's comfortable. Right. I mean, in the end, it's whatever works. And that, yeah, that exact thing happened to me with a band last year. That's what the singer wanted to do. And usually, people are very sort of meek about asking because they're quote supposed to do it in the booth with a big mic and stuff. Mm. But actually, half the time, once you've gone through that process of then doing it the way they want to do it and they realize that in this space they're going to be able to do it um they do end up going to the big mic they get curious like oh what's it what would it sound like you know mm. so yeah it's definitely all about it to me it's all about truth particularly with vocal like do you really believe it and every line should shine with the truth of that line you know if mm. the lyrics are good and if the singer's good and what i would call a perfect singer can do that almost as classical singers do they know where to put every accent and light and shade and stuff but it's very few and um you know just it's just important that every line feels like this perfect marriage between the lyric the melody and the delivery um and the way to get there doesn't really matter if you have to do it lots of times that's fine if you have to do loads of comping it's also fine but that was particularly in the Frightened Rabbit record you mentioned, actually. I did work them really hard on the vocals because the lyrics were so good. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, want, yeah. I didn't want it to all get to get sort of lost, you know. So I really believe every word he sings on that record. Mm -hmm. and, and we worked I think that was their hard. connection with their audience a lot was, was that as well. Yeah. Because, I mean, sonically they're, they're like a force, but kind of what marks them out is that lyrical content. Yeah. It's quite dense music as well, mm, so the vocal yeah. has to sort of fight a bit. But I remember mm. thinking that I didn't want the vocal to be all about fighting, you know. So I had to create space for to tell a more complex story, you know. I'd like to talk a bit about your, some of your solo work. Um, mm. A lot of your solo work's been very process-led, like on um, Scene Memory, you talk about using elements that were beyond your control to some extent. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned being inspired by Chinese ink paintings um, mm. on another record. Um, does that help you to have a concept to inspire you? Yeah, I think what usually happens is I start mulling. I start mulling something over. I'll have an idea about a, a kind of music that I'd like to make, 
And then I start noticing everywhere little clues to it, particularly in visual art, actually. It's just what resonates with me. And then, yeah, the albums tend, tend to turn out to be sort of a process of discovery. And I always think, oh, when I get to the end of it, then I'll, I'll be able to make the record that I meant to make because I'll have learned how to do it. But actually what very often happens is that it's the process itself which is the point of it. And when I try and make something else using what I've learned, it all is a bit dry. Interesting. Um, I mean, of course, there's some kind of cumulative experience and very often it feeds into records that I'm producing or, mm -hmm. you know, my guitar contributions to other people's music. But, yeah, it's, it's always about... Um, some sort of investigation for me because I guess for songwriters it's about investigating their inner world you know mm. lyrically and their concerns but I don't that's not how I like to express myself so sure. it's another kind of investigation well my next question was going to be how how do you bring those concepts when you're producing other acts or is that is it just something you use for your solo work how do you well the china it's a bit difficult to describe but the the chinese ink painting thing was there was a there was one particular artist called um liu kuo sung who made his own paper it was very sort of fibrous paper and he'd uh he'd start off with a kind of a wash on the paper and lots of different layers of wash and then he'd rip these threads out and it would start to look like mountains and rivers and that kind of thing mm, but it was using wow. not exactly chance but but th there was room for things which weren't all at the hand of the artist you know who's working with the material to generate yeah. form and some of those ideas end up in people's music you know it's 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 a bit it's just hard to describe but there is yeah. an, there's an element of production that i really like which is chaos i think it's the same for everybody it's like oh the yes. thing i didn't mean to do is the best thing yeah. but how interested bands are in particular in that stuff you can gauge from how uh excited they are about these ideas when you talk about them right and there are a couple of albums that i did which actually even though nobody bought that record it's called daylight it really got me quite a lot of work <laughs> from from bands right. because m maybe my name would get forward get put forward on a list but they wouldn't necessarily connect with the things i'd produced because it's so not in their genre or something but they'd hear my own work and they'd think oh right that's what's going on there and then we mm. talk about it so yeah it's kind of like that it's uh, it's a jumping off point and often i guess in in I think in my records, there's often a quite a pronounced layer of of chance, which then gets orchestrated so that it becomes a building block. It's not just like a, a funny noise layer in isolation. Yeah. It's much more that uh, something that's been improvised or then gets orchestrated with strings or something that is very abstract sort of guitar glitchy thing becomes one of the fundamental things it's not just decoration that's what i'm trying to say could you tell us a bit about your latest release uh, yield um and like what were the processes that that led you to that record well during lockdown um like a lot of people i i did quite a lot of work and um i got asked by someone to make a i guess what they would call a neoclassical record um but using guitar instead of the customary piano and I thought, oh, that's 
that sounds easy. And it <laughs> bloody wasn't. <laughs> In fact, it didn't work at all. <laughs> but what I, what I ended up with was a lot of material that I then had to sort out uh, and, and figure out what was what. Um, and probably, well, in a way, I think the, the best of it was on the record Scene Memory 2, which came out at the end of last year, which was all solo guitar improvisations through uh, Ableton audio effects racks. And there's no looping and no um, backing track or whatever, but it actually sort of sounds, some of the tracks sound like, I don't know, I guess, well, not a band, but there's drums, what sounds like drums anyway, and bass and yeah. pulses and guitar, but it's actually all one thing in the moment. And that was something that I went to, I did a tour of Siberia in 2019 to try and figure this stuff out. I started building mm. these racks. And, you know, some of it was okay, a lot of it wasn't okay, but I did end up finishing it, and that was, a lo that was sort of my reward at the end of each day of trying to write this neoclassical music. Uh -huh. Sort of like, I'll sod all that, I'm just going <laughs> to improvise and see what happens. And that was, you know, that was good. And with the, with the neoclassical stuff, let's call it, I, I was still hanging on to this idea that it all had to come from one guitar. I think I sort of wanted to go on stage and for these, you know, big sounds to come out and for it to be able to be played live, because I've never had mm. done that with a record before. But eventually I let go of, um, of that idea. So the Yield EP which is released with John Hopkins' managers, who we both started out on their label, actually, in the 2000s. Um, it is mostly guitar, but I allowed myself some overdubs. And um, some of it is very textural in a sort of Hakobane style, and some of it is a bit more, I don't know, I wouldn't say Nils Rami, but there's like Olaf Arnold's-esque chord progressions, I would say, on some of it. Yes, And then a lot of the pieces that I wrote and were kind of left over, I'm just finishing off into another record now. And it's all, that is all guitar, but these, what sound like quite simple pieces are actually broken up into three or four note units and played across lots and lots and lots of guitars. So it sounds just like one melody, but it might be made up of like 20 guitars. And the reason wow. I did that is because I wanted it to feel like a piano with a sustain pedal down. And you can't get that with reverb. You can only get it by letting the notes ring out. Sure. So it's been absolutely painstaking uh, yeah. to make it, but it's an interesting <laughs> effect. And um, I'm looking forward to now to mixing it and, and getting it finished. And when you toured Siberia, were you recreating some of these ideas live and, and using some of your more elaborate Ableton and main stage setups to improvise and perform in the moment, as it were? Is, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, done a lot of, I've done a lot of group improvisation over the years live, but this was the first time I'd done solo improvisation. So I had 16 gigs back to back in different cities and I was doing an hour a night. And it was pretty... Uh, confronting to tell you the truth mm. um, I, but I did really learn what worked and what didn't work so yeah it was a valuable experience certainly split the how, crowd yeah. <laughs> how, how did you organise this tour in Siberia? well there's this friend of mine called Yuri who uh, his, he's a promoter, he's a Russian promoter but he's a very unusual one he kind of lives to bring obscure free jazz to the far reaches of Russia <laughs> And he organizes this tour Amazing. every year called Muzenago. 
and it's basically 20 or 30 free jazz players on a coach driving from Moscow to Vladivostok. And I, I did this tour with a friend of mine. We, we only did two and a half weeks of it. it. It goes on for five or six weeks or something. Fudge, wow. man, wow. But yeah, but we went from Chelyabinsk to Ulan Ude and Lake Baikal. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever done. The, 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 the people are so, so wonderful and so interested in strange things. And you know, it's kind of a revelation for a lot of these musicians because I've I've been in pop bands and stuff and I know what it's like to stand in front of thousands of people, but a lot of these experimental musicians didn't and they'd we'd turn up at some concert hall in the middle of literally nowhere, like a secret town in, in one occasion, a, a nuclear oh, wow. town. And there's 2,000 people have turned up to hear a, a six-hour concert of experimental jazz. <laughs> That's incredible. And they'll sort of engage with you about it. You know, it's amazing. So anyway, I got to know you. I've known him since 2006. He's been very, very encouraging to me. And he set it up for me. Wow. And um, I mean, I, I honestly can't say enough good things about, about my experiences in Russia and about the attitude of, of Russian people of all ages to art and, and to the rest of the world. And that's one reason why... Of course, I mean, not to be banal about it, but why it's so tragic what's going mm. on at the moment because mm. it really is a beautiful country and it's not, um, it's not represented by uh, what we see. Me and Bob are both big Wild Beast fans and you've, you've done, a lo done a lot of work with them. Um, and Bob in particular, I'm reading Bob's note here, I'm, I'm, I sort of... Um, my knowledge is more kind of overview, but Bob, you would present tense is a record that you've spent a lot of time with. Yeah. I really love that band. And I just like to hear about, I think they've had quite an interesting narrative arc through, through, through their career. And, and, and you, you came on board uh, kind of in the middle of that. And I just like to hear about that experience and, and what the creative process was like, really. Sure. Well, it was actually, I took them to Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and shouted at them to get them to do good vocals. <laughs> Um, no, it was, that was a very interesting record for me. Actually, it probably changed, it was a turning point for me, actually, um, in quite a humbling way, because I'd just come from, uh, the Frightened Rabbit record, and, um, I'd also just been on tour with Pulp, or I think I was on tour with Pulp, yeah. and I think, I, I can't, remember if I'd done Paolo's record of it. I think I had. Anyway, I felt sort of like I'm on the up. And then yeah. I, I went into the Wild Beast thing and I realized how much I didn't know because Lex, who was the uh, co-producer and mixer on that record and, and main engineer, was so masterful and so completely in charge of his domain <laughs> to use a Seinfeld <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um it was I thought oh I don't know there's a lot I just don't know what I'm doing but it was a really good combination him and I because mm. we didn't always agree with the aesthetics but we also complemented each other very well on um it, it was sort of his domain was the sound and my domain was the music um, and again, that was a record where we worked incredibly hard on the vocals. And to my surprise, I ended up playing quying quite a lot on that record. Mm. Bands are often quite funny about that, 
um, mm. for, for, you know, obvious reasons. But mm. they were very open um, to it. And that was, I suppose, and I just learned a huge amount. I wasn't really interested in synths before I made that record. And then seeing really? what, what Lex did with them, it kind of made me fall in love with that. Mm. And just the process. I mean, there's all different ways to make records. And Brian and I guess Flood was influenced by Brian. I've never worked with Flood, by the way, but I just I'm going mm. on what I've heard. There's this one one approach is to sort of I don't mean messy in a pejorative way, but I mean a, a sort of artistic and quite open approach where anything can change at any time and you just do lots of stuff and then it gets kind of sorted out in the edit to an extent. Mm, yes. Or the edit is is almost like the mix is like the assembly of all these elements and some of them fall out and some of them get pushed to the front. But Lex, there was definitely room in his process for chance, definitely. And we did a lot of songs multiple times. I think we made Mecca six times before we got the right version. Yeah, okay. But nevertheless, he had this method of constructing the tracks piece by piece and it just stayed right until the mix, until the mix was barely a mix, in fact, because he'd recorded everything so well. And to be just the pure sound that it needed to be in that space in the track. And that was astonishing. You know, I mean, I've, yeah. I've worked with, I've worked with a lot of great engineers, but it's really him and Chad Blake to me are the, are the best I've ever worked with because they both have this capacity to create in the moment, the sound that, that stays intact, even through a lot yes. of changes of arrangement. I don't know. It's, it's hard mm. to describe. It was just a very yeah. different approach to what mine had been, where I'd leave room to reprocess or mm-hmm. um, I'd need to reprocess, you know. Because it almost feels architectural, isn't it? Like he can shape the brick perfectly at this moment and start to build the house. Whereas maybe sometimes as producers, you sort of throw mud at a wall and be like, I'll, I'll make that look like a wall later, but that's where the wall's going to be. Yeah, well, I suppose that's what I'm very grudgingly admitted to. I, th- I, think, uh, <laughs> I think I was doing a bit too much mud throwing. And the reason it was a turning point was I, th- I thought, right, I sort of need to grow up a bit. Like, where do you see your production going to next? Like, doesn't sound like you have a, a grand plan, but is, is there sort of, do you want to explore making more records, say, with bands, or, or is it more ambient work, or just kind of what, what do you see as what you want to develop into as, as your production grows and your career moves oh. on? Well... I'd quite like everything to become more diffuse uh, in the way that I was alluding to earlier about my studio here. I'd like to contribute to more projects and maybe mm. be ultimately in charge of fewer projects. Okay. I'd be really happy to do two or three full productions a year, maybe even just one full production a year, but continue mm. to have lots of people coming into the studio for additional production or mixing people's tracks or, you know... It's, I'd, I'd like it to become more diffuse. And actually, a lot of the most rewarding stuff that I've done over the last year or two has been not in the commercial or, or I mean, I, I don't mean pop, but it's not so much in the commercial world. Like I did a record for a Syrian uh, musician. Um, it's sort of classical Syrian music, but with some extra elements in it. And I just did a string quartet record for Anna Meredith and I really like these these projects that allude to my classical background I suppose mm. um, and I would kind of like my own music to become a little bit more of a of a focal point 
I think, over the next few years. And that's what's behind having released quite a lot of music in the last two or three mm. years. But really, yeah, I think, I think I'm best suited to working with solo artists, actually, or bands oh. who feel like they're missing a member. But I, th yeah. I think I, I do prefer the productions where I get to, to um, get hands-on with some of the music, even if it is always to serve their vision. Um, yeah, I like contributing rather than Lovely. dictating, and that's, that's sort of how I'd like it to be. Shakespeare once said that music is the food of love, but what is the food of music? As much as the right microphone or guitar amp, what we eat or drink can be such a crucial part of a recording session. So each week we like to ask our guests, what do they cook or order to get the mood right in the studio? That's a nice question. There was one guy who uh, I made a record for at my house a few years ago, and it got to be more about about the food than the record at one point. <laughs> Amazing. Great. I really, I don't know why, but I just decided I was going to really try my best to cook for this guy. So it was all like wild wild garlic omelette and all this oh, quite yes. fancy stuff. Um, but normally, uh, there's a gozleme place around the corner from me, which is pretty good. There's a great bagel place around the corner. And I think it's actually quite good to get out of the environment just for a minute even if we mm. come back and have it in the garden it's quite nice mm. to go for a little walk to kick things off uh, what's your favorite studio you've ever worked in oh it's, it's, hard, it's hard there's so many i think it has to be real world oh wow okay yeah could cool. you tell us about that experience? Well, actually, I'm about to go back there with Katie, but oh, it nice. was when I was with Ed. So I wasn't producing. I was playing guitar and doing the orchestrations. It's just a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. And Chad Blake was producing, which was, you know, a wonderful education. And we'd sit and have dinner. The, the, the food was unbelievable. And Peter Gabriel <laughs> would be there sitting around and just having a chat. He was a lovely guy. The studio itself, every part of it sounded amazing, or, or Chad made it sound amazing. It was so mm. flexible, so open. That huge control room, was, it, it felt like a, the most wonderful artist's studio. You know, there was a kind of yeah. democratic feeling about it. The opposite of feeling uh, crowded and claustrophobic, which can be exciting sometimes, but mm. it would put you in this sort of almost trancey state you just sort of float through the day and it was wonderful absolutely wonderful uh, and then when we recorded the orchestra ed and i were terrified because it was such a big deal and we both stayed up till 4am getting pissed and regretted it the next morning <laughs> and the the swans at real world were on their on high alert because the the eggs had just hatched so there's this little bridge where you go over from the accommodation to the studio and we watched in horror as the entire orchestra was attacked by swans. <laughs> Viciously attacked. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, it was horrible. Wow. Those things are brutal. Yeah, and then I got on the uh, podium to conduct this tune, and there's five minutes to go until the, you know, I was sweating because of nerves and alcohol, I suppose. And uh, <laughs> there were no microphones. What? So what? I went, yeah, it was like a bad dream. Because, you know, the clock's really tight. I was like, oh, God, Chad yeah. hasn't set up the mics. So I went into the control room and said, well, why aren't there any mics? I guess there are mics. Where, where are they? And he said, look above your head. 
And I oh, wow. went out there again, looked up, and he just put a binaural head above the conductor position. Wow. And I said, yeah, but what about if, I, if we want to turn up the cellos later or something like that? And he said, well, you just have to get it right. <laughs> and I was <laughs> 25. <laughs> was, uh, yeah. What's your favorite plug-in? Uh, I think probably Torp at the moment, the Acoustica plug-in. I mean, all the Acoustica stuff is really interesting, but um, Torp is so, it just is so useful for so many things. And the EQ section of it is it's just so musical. It's, it's, that, that stuff is very, a very exciting development, I think. Conversely, what's your favorite piece of hardware? Oh, can, can I say an either or? Yeah, 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 go ahead. Definitely. Okay, yeah. it's either the UBK Fatso. Um, I mean, the, the original Fatso is fantastic, but the the other compression curves that UBK put in are really, really musical and fun. Cool. And it just is, it makes everything sound better, I think. Sometimes it makes things sound too good. If you do too much, <laughs> it goes a bit smooth. But it's it's fantastically useful as well for controlling all manner of things and contributing to their character. And the other one, I guess, would be the overstayer modular channel, which uh -huh. um, the ability to do parallel processing going down, I feel like it saves lots of time. And the filters are really unusual and really useful. The pre's are lovely. That's a great bit of gear. Your favorite synth? Favorite synth is a Russian synth called the Eilita. And it, it looks like a tank. It's got this sort of gray metal enclosure. Um, it's very heavy. It's from 1981, and um, oh, wow. it sounds bonkers. It's sort of it, something to do with the filters. I don't know why, but it doesn't sound like anything else, and it's, it's evil. Final of the Fast Five, what's your favorite microphone? Well, I'm going to say the R88, the uh, AEA stereo ribbon. Oh, nice. Again, I, I keep saying that word musical, but it just yeah. Yeah. It sounds very yeah. musical and... Um, kind of finished if you know what i mean do you have a favorite production that you were involved in i feel like maybe the ghost poet record um right. it was hard to well i care about all the records a lot but i i really cared about that one a lot and obar came in with really really good demos um but we did elevate them a lot and um it was a record that had a lot of this sort of chance process, a lot of experimental type guitar, which became the backbone to some of the tracks. And it also had string arrangements that I did. And it just was a, I, when that was finished, I felt like it was a nice balance of all the things that I like to do. And I mixed it with, with a, my friend Chris Harris, who did a great job. But mm -hmm. it's like that was a start to finish thing that Chris helped me finish at the mix stage. So probably that. And then the other one I'd pick is a track that I've just released on, um, actually, is it very, very solipsistic to pick my own track? N not at all, de definitely Oh, right, not. okay. Well, um, it's called Forage. And um, it was a track that I made and had completely forgotten about, actually. I was mix I just finished mixing Scene Memory 2, and I was about to kind of clear out all the junk from that folder, these hundreds of aborted ideas. And... Um, <laughs> I thought, I'll just open a few, see what they're like. And I opened this one, and it was exactly what I'd hoped to achieve with the record, but not quite achieve with it. It's quite long form. It's seven-minute improvisation. And, um, yeah, it just turned out right. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so, 
I'm going to try and pick up do where you, I left off. Do you know why it got overlooked initially? Well, one thing I have found, particularly with improvisation, but I think with every area of music, is that it doesn't really matter what mood you're in. There's some other part of you that's at work. Um, so the things that you do when you're in a very good mood might be crap. And the things that mm. you, you can also go and feel very uninspired, as I know that I did at that time on that day, because I remember, you know, it's like February and I would have just cycled across town in the rain probably and it was at 10 in the morning. And I know how I was feeling at that time. I was feeling quite discouraged. And yeah, you can be feeling like that, but something really good will come out. Mm. And I find that quite reassuring and quite liberating because instead of thinking, oh, I must uh, go and get inspiration or I'll just reward myself before I even start with a cruffin. <laughs> I don't even like cruffins. But anyway, it, it basically doesn't matter. If you're in a bad mood, don't worry, still go to work. And that, that piece, is a, for me, was an example of that. Finally, this is one we ask everyone, um, what's the most important tool at your disposal as a producer? Perspective. Nice. Yeah, it's not a tool that's always readily to hand. But <laughs> yes. yeah. I think that's such a big part of the job, is to keep perspective you know, on the project, on yourself, on how the artist's feeling, on what you're doing, why you're doing it. You know, I think one thing that is very apposite is even though I said earlier I go into every production feeling a bit unsure, I do still know the ropes and I know the process. I'm unsure about exactly what I'm going to do, but that's hopefully that's an exciting thing. It means I'm not just churning it out or phoning it in or whatever. But mm -hmm. artists may only get to make uh, three records in six years or something like that, or maybe mm. not even that. Yeah. But as a producer, you're involved, hopefully, with quite a lot of records, and that ought to give you the ability to have perspective on okay. what's going on and why. I mean, it's very easy to lose perspective. It's, it's actually, yeah. it's just like when you have to switch monitors or listen to a reference track or something, you can lose perspective very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. But the ability to sort of zoom out for a bit and just step back and try to keep the show on the road. We've probably that. Uh, thank you to Leo for that. That was a that was like a lovely. It's a really warm day today, and that interview was like a nice cool bath just listening to that and getting so much wonderful kind of insight and stories um yeah and he's, he's got a great voice doesn't he he's got a very he does, soothing yeah. voice i was thinking Super while i was listening back like this guy could be on radio or do audio books or something a hundred percent and he said a few things that sort of link back to how we started with the oblique strategies at the beginning and and bob you pulled one out in particular as, as sort of well, your first takeaway yeah honestly we didn't plan that oblique strategy card that i pulled I, I but i don't think i could have picked a better one because um I, I love Leo said lots of really cool things and, and we'll put some of the favorite bits up on, on our, on our Instagram at some point. But I loved when he said, um, the thing I didn't mean to do is the best thing. Mm, and, nice. um, that ties back to that oblique strategy of honoring thy error, uh, as hidden intention, which is a much more poetic, uh, Brian Eno-esque way to say it. But you can, you can tell like the way that Leo approaches his music. He's come from the school of Eno and, uh, in the way that he thinks about everything. And I just thought it was funny that, that he, because th this is a bit like me, uh, when I produce my own music, um, simply for my own creative soul, 
I often mm. need a brief or a concept mm. like Leo does with his solo records. And um, I just think it's funny that you, you you do this brief and then he goes through all the work to do the album and then re then realizes that, oh, he's done something else entirely and only now do I know how to do the thing I intended to do, but that's actually rubbish and the thing I did is actually <laughs> kind of cool. So yes. Um, yes. it's just inspiring to kind of keep working even if you feel like you're not, achieving your goal or you're getting a bit stuck yeah and he talks about like one of the pieces he's most proud of being one that he sort of made in a mind funk and he just discarded at the time because he's like no oh, yeah. it's not it's not what i set out to do or it's, it's not a vibe and it wasn't until he came back to it months later and he went that's the complete realization of of what i wanted to achieve mm. with this project and that antenna open kind of thing and it sort of links back to like the mistake as your intention or, or something not being as you wished but but then you get that perspective on it and it might actually be exactly what you needed yeah kind of bizarre actually I, I, i've never heard anything that drastic of going back to something and realizing oh this is exactly what i meant and mm. at the time disliking it like but it just goes to show how important fresh ears are anyway yeah i had one track once that i opened up that i'd been working on for a while and i thought oh, i'll have a listen to that again and i pressed play and i had literally done I'd written a whole new baseline, top line, everything, and I have no memory of having ever done it. Yeah. And yeah. and get you know, get in that fugue state and just, you know, let it happen and and don't question it and and then come back to it. Lovely stuff. Th that does happen to me quite a lot that I forget doing stuff cuz cuz I don't tend to look back on stuff that often and um it's it's quite nice when you've been produ producing for a long time um or even just like churning out ideas and or beats mm. or whatever you you can't you don't remember them all and it's a really nice feeling to come back to something and be like did i make this um, yeah yeah like, that's great uh, it's fun. um a slightly more general thing that i really thought was interesting one of my favorite things that leo said or most interesting things leo said was about how now he's got this new studio he maybe doesn't want to be involved in those super huge projects but he wants to plug in to artist projects and facilitate it as and when he can whether that's as a producer or a performer as an arranger and there's two things there. I think that idea of doing work like that is very modern and and actually, yeah, sounds super appealing when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And it also speaks to how he has these varied skill sets and he he doesn't see himself as chained to one lane and, and is happy to to use them all just to facilitate great music. It's like a loss of ego in a way. Yeah, it's a good example of how he knows he knows what his value is in terms of like what he's best at and the kind of projects that, that he's he's best at. He would compare himself to like other maybe like more high profile guys and be like, oh, I'm not in their league. But it genuinely sounds like he doesn't want to be in that league. Mm, he's kind of yeah. playing a different sport. And, yes, and that's what I was more, about. You beat me to yeah. the analogy. It's like he's not <laughs> he's not trying to win that game. He's he's yeah. doing a different different sport. Yes, that's another Brian Eno quote. Actually, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact thing, but he says something like. Um, don't try and hit the same target that everyone else is hitting. Like throw your dart and then paint the target around it. Which, oh, nice, lovely. Which, which is easy to say because, like, you know, we yeah, all, sure. We, we sure. all deep down, most of us want to kind of write hits and that and that that yes, target. Be is successful crowded. in the world that we've chosen to exist in. Yeah, but I do think it's still a nice concept of like, you know, what you're doing is 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 cool and interesting in its own right, and that is a target in itself. Yeah, and historically, I always found those quotes from people like Mr. Eno somewhat frustrating because I think they're very easy to say yeah. from a point of success. Yeah, and when you're yeah. trying to achieve success and people are suggesting slight compromises to you or, you know, mm. 
often they are necessary, particularly within a commercial realm. And, and actually, mm-hmm. that's a lie. Probably in all realms, I just haven't spent much time in more avant-garde realms. But mm-hmm. you do occasionally have to make certain compromises or put certain songs on or get certain mixes done. And then, you know, when you're in a position where you've sold loads of records and then you can start dictating, it's easier. Yeah. But actually, the more I've gone on, I actually do really see how valuable and important these things are and, and your way of living your artistic life is because ultimately it will lead you to the places you need to get in a much better way. And it will give you a ballast against this like very difficult industry that at times mm. can throw big rocks at you. And that knowledge that you're following your path or you're painting your own target, like Leo has, I think can lead to a really happy and healthy place. Yeah, I think I think you're completely right though, and it's it's important to acknowledge how how tough it is to ignore the pressures to aim for the same target as everyone else mm. and and ignore those commercial pressures sometimes. So, yeah, I thought it was funny that we were talking about how to get a good vocal or or how to get a good performance, and, and he mm. he sort of said um, the nice lighting and a, cu- a nice cup of tea is like production one hundred and one, <laughs> and I just thought it was funny because that is something that we've gone over a lot like from the beginning, mm. and it's. And it is, but yeah, maybe maybe it's time for us to retire that conversation now. Or, or yes, yeah, no, of. fair play, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's not an uh, in, yeah, it's it's a truth. It's a received truth now. It's a received. Yeah, knowledge. yeah. Well, our yes. our regular listeners will have heard it enough, but like, but it is such an important point that you know, I mm. guess it keeps coming up. That's why I just thought it was a bit funny that he he mentioned it as the yeah, and the, and the vocals in the control room, which was like one of the first things that came up with Tim Brown at the beginning of this yeah. thing with like lockdown and people doing it with his SM sevens. And yeah, um, that now seems more prevalent than the vocal booth. So yeah, yeah. maybe now almost, we start going yeah. to people, do you, do you even have a vocal booth? Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's the question now, like, yes, as opposed to it, like, are you happy to track on an SM seven in, in the control room? Well, it's just, now that we've got a uh, 20, what is it? 24, 25 of these under our belt now, I think, yeah, we can, we can start advancing some of those conversations to the next level. I, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. How well, it, actually how we guys do. on that, re- do reach out to us. Like we've noticed the last few weeks, um, a lot more of you coming on board, which is great. So if there mm. are questions or, or like avenues that really appeal to you as producers or hobbyists, or just like keen amateurs, like do pop us an email on process of production podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, it's it's always really frustrating when you, you hear an interview and maybe they don't quite ask the question that you want or don't dig quite deep enough. So if you ever have that frustration, like do not hesitate to get in touch and be like, can you can you like dig a bit deeper on this or ask this mm. extra question? Because we can always go back to one of the interviewees and uh, ask them something if you have a burning question. Um, I'd like to finish the takeaways just by saying it was so lovely to get that Brian Eno story. And, and the way Leo yeah. told it was very humble, but also like, he sort of gets that it's an archetypal but also unique Eno story of like yeah. the a meeting him in a guitar shop while doing harmonics. Yeah, could if it was written in a script, yeah. you'd be like, "Can we have something that's a bit more clearly Brian e- what Brian Eno would do?" Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, there's probably it's, a jazz guy sat next to Leo who was like, "That's Brian Eno. I'm going to start shredding some like yeah. Django Reinhardt." Yeah, um, and I want, Leo's just I, I'd love the to hear. Yeah, I'd love to hear like. Maybe when Leo checks the intonation, it's just so much more beautiful than any other guitarist or something. I think there's like, an there's got to be an element of that. It's like when yeah. the, you can tell how a baseball pitcher how good they are from the sound of the ball hitting the glove, and I'm sure right. Brian can hear how someone can play from their you know intonation checking. But yeah. then also like the the ability to go, oh, he's testing me with this untuned <laughs> guitar. I'll I'll do this like yeah. hang hang drum part. Yeah, incredible. Um, I love. But also, I also love then the thing where he has to go, 
uh, Mr. Eno, could I tune it now and play something? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Like, I, I think that's, do... that's, that's only my second favourite anecdote in the interview, though. The, the one about the swans attacking the, the orchestra Amazing. Is, yes. is, is yes. clearly the best. And you could tell from his voice, like, I know this sounds funny, but it, it really was quite terrifying for everyone. No, it was, yeah, I, like, I, wasn't, I wasn't kidding either. The swans can be pretty dangerous. Like, you don't want to get too close to them when they're guarding their... their yeah, um, when my son goes near them when, they guard, when they've got their babies and they have their babies yeah. with them at the moment. I'm like, this is close. This is quite close enough. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's um, that urban legend that they can break your arm with one flap of their yeah. wing. I don't want to find out if that's true. We, we can't be sure. I mean, I don't think... Brian was on that session from what Leo was saying, but we can't be sure that if Brian had been, that he wouldn't have um, set the swans free to put the players in a certain state of mind <laughs> to achieve the exact sound and terror that he needed for, for that part. Um, oh, thank you so much to Leo. That after We've had so many great interviews to start this series and, and that really just slotted in and, and um, it was an nice, interview wholesome. I needed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was great. I hope you enjoyed, guys. And, um, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the process of production this week. If you enjoyed it, please give us a follow and maybe even a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. It really helps. And please get in touch if you have any thoughts on the show, questions you'd like answered, or producers you'd like to see featured. We'd love to hear from you. Our Instagram is at Process of Production and our email is Process of Production Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>